This episode does contain a few more sweary bits than usual, but not many in the scheme of things. Also, suicide and sexual offending are raised, though neither in graphic detail. We just wanted to give you a heads up. And if you need it, the helplines will be in the show notes for this episode. What did you say? You had no power. No electricity. I want you to so, meet someone. Yeah, it was cold breakfast. Uh, stovetop coffee on the gas stovetop. This is a colleague of ours. He's a bit... Yeah, well, I'm a little bit nervous, mate. Are you? Yeah, I am. But he shouldn't be. He's what we call in the business a bloody good sort. I'm Edward Gay. I'm a senior journalist at Stuff. I specialise in crime and justice reporting. He's been doing it for years. My first case was in 2008, the trial of Chris Kahui. That was the first trial I, I ever covered. The Kahui case was a huge story. Twin babies who died of head injuries. How are you feeling, Chris? Uh, good. Real good. Their father, Chris, was eventually charged with murder, but he was found not guilty. In the deep end? Right in the deep end. <laughs> um, I don't know if I kept my head above the water, to be honest. Uh, Can't imagine that. Baptism. Um, as well as being one of those characters around the newsroom. Oh, no, you don't want to do it like that, mate. <laughs> yeah, no, you want to put in another exhaust pipe. With a great laugh. <laughs> he's a hugely respected reporter who understands that, drama aside, court cases are about much more than procedure and points of law. It definitely comes down to people because these cases are often examining the worst possible moment in a person's life. And not just that person's life but their family, their friends, sadly and tragically, often the victim of the crime is a person known to them as well. And I guess it's that pressure cooker environment of of putting all of that under a, a really intense examination. In that environment where there are people with big personalities, big characters, often the lawyers, sometimes under that pressure, Things explode and people go off the rails. And there was one particular person who Edward had reported on that we were interested in. Have you ever come across anyone quite like the guy from these stories that you wrote? I've never come across anyone quite like Alan Aman. Tēnā koutou katoa, no mai hoki mai. Greetings and welcome back to True Story. Koe Eugene Binger maho. And I'm Adam Dudding. Kia ora. True Story number four. Indefensible. What is that? Are we auditioning a new theme tune or something? Seriously? It's the theme tune for LA Law, late 80s, early 90s US legal drama TV series. Come on. Heard of it. Never saw it. Had a bit of everything. Courtroom dramas, big money, office politics, inappropriate romance. So who's your favourite fictional legal character then, Adam? Well, Eugene, that's easy. Hello, Alan Shore. Warm tie. Oh, sure. Alan Shaw from Boston Lee. I wasn't sure I'd made an impression. Did I hear Wit, you humor, sparring, and the friendship with the kind of monstrous Denny Crane. I didn't hear that. Oh, yeah. Boston Legal's a classical, right? Though, I am surprised. I'd picked you as an Atticus Finch man, Adam. Ben in the law? To kill a mockingbird. Nah. Sorry, I, 
I actually think Boston Eagle might be the only legal drama I've ever watched. Hopeless. Edward Gay was far more helpful when I chatted with him. My favourite fictional lawyer would, and I stress fictional, would have to be Cleaver Green. Oh, the classic. Rake. The classic from Rake. Exactly. And that's what the jury will be expecting when you get in the box. And what'll they get? Harry Potter. He always had a plan, no matter how what was happening in his personal and professional life, which often obviously overlapped. He always had a way out. Yeah, I admire his qualities of essentially a slippery eel personified. <laughs> it wouldn't occur to you just to say, David Potter is a decent man who desperately loves Scarlet and no. wouldn't hurt her for all the world? No. Mate, that jury between them would have watched 10,000 episodes of Law and Order. They've heard all that shit before. Trust me. Do you recognise him in any of the lawyers you've encountered? No comment. <laughs> and that's the thing with all those TV lawyers. They're characters, even when they're a bit dodgy or incompetent, and it's great fun and stuff. What's that, um, the Boston Legal, the fa famous law show? This is, well, we're going to call him... Hello, yes, my name is Bill. Bill is not his real name, by the way, and we've changed his voice too to protect his identity. He's going to tell us about how his life was destroyed when he got tangled up with a lawyer who, let's say, didn't do his job properly. It all started out after what you might describe as an awkward situation. Yeah, miscommunication at best, I think. Around this time, Bill was doing a variety of work, including... Yeah, I did a lot of life modeling. Now, Bill was... Life is normal. Just a regular guy. Happy person. Had never been in trouble with the law before. The most I ever had against my name was a parking ticket. So that's great, but looking back, Bill realises this meant when it came to the justice system, he was very naive and um, in hindsight, yeah, it cost me <laughs> big time. One day he gets asked if he can be a life model for an artist, a woman who wanted him to pose for a bronze sculpture, like a live sculpture work of me. And just to be clear, yeah, it was a nude bronze sculpture. On the second session, Bill goes back to the art studio and things were going well. At least that's how Bill read the situation at the time. We'll let him tell the story of what happened next, according to him. I guess I thought she was interested in me. Um, yeah, we were getting along really well. <clears throat> um, yeah, it's just, I sort of, it's almost like, a, yeah, got a bit t turned on and it's like a guy, you know, trying to kiss a girl. I wasn't even, in, I was a couple of metres away from her. Um and basically said, or, you know, said, are you interested if I do this? And she said, yeah, if you have to. Um, yes, I touched, touched my dick. And um, she didn't react. Um, and she just said, okay, thanks for the session. We're done now. And I said, oh, okay. Um, and I, yeah, got dressed and I left. <clears throat> and... Yeah, that was it. Um, there was no, no real strange reaction from her. But, um, like I said, I thought she was into me or like me. 
um, yeah, I said goodbye and said see you next week because it was supposed to be 10 sessions. Um, yeah. After this incident where Bill had got an erection, then uh, touched himself and left, he was, well, he said it was... Yeah, maybe um, slightly awkward. I, I think we sort of misunderstood or misheard each other. Had there been any mutual touching or him touching her or anything? Bill says no. There is, however, a bit more context from court documents. According to those, when Bill started to touch himself, he asked the sculptor if she minded. She says she replied, do you have to? Although Bill says he heard her say something slightly different, if you have to. The sculptor says Bill then asked her to assist him. He acknowledges he may have said something to that effect. The sculptor then told Bill it was not cool. He realised she was not comfortable with it and left the room. So, yeah, I think we can all agree this was not a cool situation. And clearly, he made the sculptor uncomfortable. That's not in dispute. And none of what we're about to talk about is a reflection on her or her version of events. What this story is about is what happened in the aftermath. So, Bill leaves. It's awkward, to say the least. But he's expecting to come back the next week for a third session. Then, two days after this incident, he gets a phone call at midnight. You know, it's never going to be good when your phone rings at midnight. No, it isn't. It's the police, and they say they want to talk to him. We'd like you to come down to the station. Bill says... Okay, sure, no problem. Bill arranges to come in the next day. The next afternoon at two o'clock. Okay, so he's a bit worried, but he thinks, all right, I'll go in and sort this out. But then, a couple of hours later... Probably 2am in the morning. He's banging on my door, flashlights through the window. There's about four cops at his door. I was obviously a bit stunned. I was like, what the hell? What's going on? You gotta come with us. Get dressed. Bill's in shock. This is all a misunderstanding, surely. I'm having a bit of a panic attack. Down at the station, Bill thinks he can explain his side of the story. But it's not easy. I couldn't talk, literally couldn't talk properly. That asked me a question, I felt like I couldn't breathe. There's a discussion about Bill getting a lawyer, but according to him, the police say... There's really no point, you should just tell us what happened, because if you get a lawyer, then you're just have to, gonna come back tomorrow with the lawyer and we're gonna go, have to go through this whole thing again. So, you know, there's no need, just tell us. Again, I didn't know. By the way, don't try this at home, kids. Always get a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. Bill does his best to tell his side of the story without any legal assistance. Like one or two sentences string together. The police listen, leave the interview room to go to talk to their boss, then come back and say, Okay, yeah, we decided we're going to charge you. Bill is charged and now has a new status in life, accused criminal. He has his fingerprints taken, his photo taken, he's given a date for when he has to appear in court, and he's sent home. Now, we can't overstate the stress Bill is under at this point. He'd initially been charged with indecent assault, though it was later scaled back to doing an indecent act. But at this point, he goes online, looks at other cases, and he's thinking, I'm going to jail. His world is crashing in on him. I think I googled sexual assault, and I think it said something like, you know, 
X amount of years in jail. I've, I think at that point, I, I literally thought about committing suicide. Um, like, I, like actually, I was like, I'm, nah, I'd rather kill myself than go to jail because it's game over by that point anyways. Yeah, so that sort of level of stress was unreal. So in this state, vulnerable to say the least, he Googles something else. Lawyer New Zealand, Lawyer Auckland, something along along those lines. There's one search result that's very prominent. It's at or near the top of the page for one particular lawyer. And on that lawyer's website... I think he mentioned that he's been successful with various cases. He's worked on high-profile cases. Everything looked very professional. We've had a look at what this website said back then. It's no longer up, by the way. But back then... The website had glowing recommendations from clients, and this lawyer was even claiming to be running, quote, the premier law practice in Auckland, end quote. And who is this lawyer coming out on top in the Google search? Yeah. Alan Oman. The guy our colleague Edward Gay talked about earlier. I've never come across anyone quite like Alan Aman. Now, let's be clear. When Bill engages Alan Aman to represent him, there's no indication that there's anything wrong. Not officially, anyway. Outwardly, he certainly looked the part. Suits, perfectly tailored. Bright white shirts. Perfectly slick hair as well. I remember him as having these quite delicately gold-rimmed glasses. Nothing out of place. His manner in court was very measured. Yeah, spoke well, very confident. Competent, yeah, hot shot. So, to Bill, things seemed fine, and when he'd got hold of Alan Aman, he'd been reassured. When I first made contact with him over the phone, he seemed very confident in what he was doing and his recommendations, so I felt like I was in good hands. Criminal cases take a long time to sort out, so Bill is a bit unsure about exact timings, but at one point he remembers talking to Alan Aman over the phone, and things sounded promising. But he said, the thing is because it's a... A lower charge and the fact that I had no criminal history before anything, he said, the good news is you'll get the result you want. In other words, I'll get the case dropped or thrown out, whatever, but we'll just have to do it in a roundabout way so he'll apply for the discharge without conviction. Legal explainer time, a discharge without conviction is where someone pleads guilty or is found guilty, but the judge can exercise their discretion not to convict the person. So, although guilty of the crime they won't have a criminal record. Bill isn't exactly happy to be admitting something that, in his mind, he didn't do, but he's prepared to listen to his lawyer and take that path if it will end in him having no record. I don't want to plead guilty, but I'm going to take your advice and I'm going to do it. After a bunch more delays, Bill has formally entered a guilty plea and is due back in court to have everything finalised. Well, actually, first up, a day or so before this, Bill says... He gets a call from Alan Arman saying he owes him money. And he just called me and there's no mercy. Pay up or... You're just going to have to face it on your own. Bill doesn't want to face it on his own, so he scrambles, borrows the money from a friend. The whole legal case ends up costing $8,000, by the way, and goes along to court expecting to finally have this mess cleared up. But it isn't cleared up. Almost as soon as the judge started speaking, like within 10 seconds, I was like, this is not what I was told. This isn't going according to plan. The judge is reading out what's called a summary of facts, a kind of official statement of what happened and of what Bill has formally admitted to. I was like in shock. I, I, I turned around and looked at Ireland and I was like, what's going on? This isn't what happened. 
nothing of what I said was was in there. And everything that I'm hearing, I'm hearing for the first time. But it's too late to change anything. This is like a runaway train. And based on the information in the summary of facts, the judge says there's no way this is a discharge without conviction kind of situation. Bill is convicted of doing an indecent act. He has a criminal record. He's sentenced to 120 hours of community service, which he says wasn't the part that really upset him. It was the conviction. I could never travel, I could never apply for jobs because it's on your record. Obviously the, the financial damage of it at that point in time. Broken and battered and confused. But Bill isn't yet ready to concede defeat. He decides he needs to find another lawyer and mount one more fight. He takes the leap and he's shocked. His new lawyer explains to him just how badly he's been let down by Alan Aman. And he also learns he's not the only one who's been let down by Aman. That's coming up. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So, for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Bill has been convicted of doing an indecent act, but he's decided to contact another lawyer to see if there's anything that can be done. Which, you know, must have been nerve-wracking. How anxious did you feel that you've got to go and get another lawyer to fix the lawyer problem? Oh, yeah, very, very anxious. Oh, yeah, luckily this new lawyer was different, different calibre. This new lawyer is Annabelle Maxwell-Scott, and she immediately gets to work. She got in, in touch with the police, got all the information, everything. And first thing she said was, like, um, I'm sure we can get this turned around. You know, there's evidence, enough evidence to get the case turned over because just of how badly he screwed up. That evidence was, well, for starters, the lack of evidence. The fact that Alan Arman hadn't even looked at the evidence the police had against Bill. He hadn't even looked at that videotape from the police interview room the night Bill had tried to give his side of the story. He didn't even look at your interview with the police. Is that right? Yeah, afterwards I heard, yeah. He... Mm. So he's giving you all this advice and convincing you to do something that you, you're feeling comfortable about. He doesn't even have the full facts in front of him. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty crazy. With the full facts now in front of her, Bill's new lawyer, Annabelle, has to try to have the conviction overturned. Something that is not easy when your client has pleaded guilty. Annabelle took the case to the High Court. Eventually, eight months after Bill was convicted, Justice Mark Wolford ruled Bill had been let down. He was entitled to a proper defence that 
there were things which could have been put to a jury on Bill's behalf if the case had gone to trial, and there were explanations for what had happened that day in the art studio. Another side to the story. The conviction was overturned, the case was sent back to the district court, and the police decided not to go ahead with another case against Bill. He was free. Yeah, like being reborn. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, like the start of a new life. Um, yeah, because again, I, I, I haven't been in prison, but it, mentally I was. <laughs> so, for Bill, it was over. Kind of. You get the feeling the experience will never entirely leave him. By this time, our colleague Edward Gay had heard about other cases. There had been this one which got everyone in the Auckland legal fraternity talking. There was a judgement from District Court Judge David McNaughton, who, it's fair to say, slammed Alan Aman and his work. That McNaughton judgement was discussed widely amongst the profession. There was genuine concern amongst the criminal bar. This case involved a guy who was charged with sexual violation. On the day of the trial, Alain Aman had convinced his client to plead guilty, saying the judge who was sitting that day didn't like sex cases, so the outcome wouldn't be good for him if he tried to claim innocence. That case was later picked up by Shane Tate and Jonathan Hudson. They're lawyers, in case that wasn't clear. And they managed to overturn that guilty plea. Judge McNaughton ruled that Aman had hardly met his client whom he charged $5,000, that he'd never been in possession of a physical file of the case, and that after two years of hold-ups, he'd given his client misleading advice and pressured him into pleading guilty. The matter went back to trial and he was acquitted. By the way, Judge McNaughton also dissected Arman's marketing info and website. He raised his eyebrows about Arman's claim to be running the premier law practice in Auckland and raised serious misgivings about whether those glowing testimonials on the website were even genuine. Side note, how did the accused in this case find Alana Arman in the first place? Yep, Google. Another case that made its way to appeal involved a man charged with historic sexual offending. Here's Edward. In that case, Alan Arman took it to trial, but in the end convinced the defendant not to give evidence in his own defence. Lawyer Fletcher Pilditch picked up that case and he took that to the Court of Appeal where it was found that the advice that Alan Aman gave about choosing not to give evidence in his own defence essentially resulted in a, in a miscarriage of justice. And again, that, that conviction was overturned, went back to the district court where no evidence was offered by the prosecution and the charges were dismissed. But he was he also was staring down the barrel of a of over three uh, three year sentence in prison, and in fact he spent time in prison on remand, didn't he? But while waiting appeal, exactly, yeah, he was he was in prison for some eight or nine months um, whilst the appeal was making its way to the court of appeal. So somebody lost their liberty, one of his clients. Yeah, exactly, yeah, in in prison <laughs> due due to uh, Alan Aman's advice. We should probably pause here because some of you might be thinking, hey, you know, people who are charged with crimes, yeah, stop. For starters, it's a fundamental right that people are entitled to a presumption of innocence and a fair trial, which includes getting good legal advice. And 
Edward also points out it's not just about the people charged, the defendants. I realise we're perhaps fighting an unpopular fight here in that we're sticking up for the rights of defendants. But I think, you know, it's important to also remember that these miscarriages of justice, they're not just, they're not only affecting the defendant because it's the victims of crime who have to relive giving evidence again in court when there's been a miscarriage of justice. And then there's everyone's time, court time, judges' time, the efforts of the lawyers who have to come in and clean up the mess. And also, yeah, you should think about the people who are on these charges. The thing you've got to remember is in many of these cases, we're talking about people, hugely vulnerable people, who are probably experiencing the most traumatic time in their lives. That's perhaps particularly the case in the fourth known miscarriage of justice involving Alan Arman. He was a young person, or relatively young, first time interacting with the criminal justice system and had mental health issues as well. This is another lawyer. I'm James Olsen, I'm a criminal barrister here in Auckland. Who had to pick up the pieces after another case involving Alan Arman. The difficult thing with a lot of people that come before the courts is they've got underlying issues of what whatever kind and in this case he had um, Asperger's and that was part of why he'd approached the complainant in this particular case and why he'd asked for the particular assistance he had and it made him as well as other things and that made him you know need a bit more care and attention around the legal advice that he was given and talking through things with him as well and so a lot of people who come before the courts, there's things going on, whether it's addictions or mental health issues, and it's easy to vilify the conduct that's done, but as a society, we should be looking to see not about punishing them, but about seeing what's gone untreated all this time and what can we actually do so that this doesn't happen again. This is a delicate case for the reasons that James set out. He's reluctant to go into all the details when we interview him, but to help understand what happened, you should probably know that the defendant in this case, a vulnerable young man with issues, remember, wore an adult nappy. On the day in question, he approached a woman outside a hostel and said he needed help changing a nappy. She presumed he meant a child's nappy, so accompanied him into the hostel before realising he meant his own nappy. So, back to James. The complainant began to assist him with that. During the course of that, she became uncomfortable and became a bit upset, as did the appellant. As a result, she went to leave and he hugged her and placed his head in her chest and breast area. And she subsequently left and reported the matter to police. And that's really how things came to the fore. Uh, And he was charged in the indecent assault allegation, the indecency really relates to hugging the complainant and then placing his head or resting his head on her chest area. An unwanted hug is inappropriate and resting someone's head in someone else's chest may not be appropriate in certain circumstances but the law only criminalises that which he understood to have a lack of consent and that's the difficulty that arose in this particular situation was that there was a possible defence for him which was never explored. So yeah, 
another awkward situation, and unfortunately, another situation that landed with Alan Arman. Do you know how we ended up with Mr. Arman? Google search. Hmm. So he searched on Google and found Mr. Arman, and at that time he had been um, holding himself out on the website as being one of the best lawyers in the country. Later, James and another lawyer, John Munro, would learn that the young man was advised by Alan Arman to plead guilty. He was told he would get him a discharge without conviction. Sound familiar? But Alan Arman had offered this advice without even having a look at the evidence the police had or how strong the case was. Arman hadn't looked at the evidence or the quality of it that had been obtained by the police and what possible defences the appellant may have because there were certain options he had available to him. But none of those options were explored. The case went to court, the client had pleaded guilty, and remember, the plan had been for Alan Arman to argue for a discharge without conviction. In fact, Mr Arman got up and advised the judge he wouldn't be advancing a discharge without conviction. So he changed tack? So he went in there and said, there's no way I'm going to advance a discharge without conviction. Wow. Let's just proceed to sentencing, and the client didn't even know that was about to happen. When it went to appeal, even the prosecution agreed the legal advice had been insufficient. The High Court overturned the conviction and ruled there had been a miscarriage of justice. The police withdrew the charges and the young man's name was finally cleared. It shows he shouldn't have ever been convicted in the first place of this uh, and the effect of the advice that he received from Mr Armin and the way that his case was conducted uh, had led to a particular miscarriage. Look. James wants to be clear that this outcome is no reflection on the complainant, the young woman who just tried to help a stranger. Absolutely. And I think the important thing to remember is the criminal justice system is not the best place to consider whether something has or hasn't happened. The question is whether or not the law has been broken. And so it's not about saying the complainant's wrong or right. That's not what the criminal process does in this or any other case that's simply considering whether or not the defendant has broken the law in such a way as that he should be punished by the law. There are echoes here of the case involving Bill, the life model, a situation where it doesn't necessarily look good and where the complainant deserves to be heard. But where there's a defence available People are entitled to proper legal advice, and that's what this story is about. So, four cases where the courts declared a miscarriage of justice had occurred because of the conduct of Alan Arman. No one we spoke to, or Edward spoke to, in the course of the reporting of this story knows of any situation like it where there were so many cases screwed up in such a short space of time. This all happened within two years. In actual fact, plenty of people think there may be more. Many more. One of those people is a lawyer who did work for Alan Arman early in her career. Edward spoke to her, and what she had to say was kind of hair-raising, both in the way she was treated by Arman, for starters, he didn't pay her, and in the startling ways he advised this inexperienced lawyer to handle the cases he passed her. That lawyer told me about their sort of day-to-day operations and sometimes that would involve turning up to court with no written submissions filed on behalf of their client. So they had a well-meaning person in their corner but they had no real 
advocacy happening on their behalf. Essentially, that judge was receiving the advice from corrections and what the police or the Crown wanted. Nothing from the defence. And that was happening, you know, they talked about that happening on a daily basis. She said that it would be impossible to know how many miscarriages of justice there had been. It's just horrifying. Alan Aman practised for years in district courts around Auckland. I saw him in Waitakere, in Auckland, in Monaco. He practised for years. Edward points out that when you start doing mental calculations about how many other cases there might be, you should consider that there were 19 months between when that damning decision came out from Judge McNaughton slamming Alan Aman's conduct and when he was suspended from practising the law. How many clients he saw in just that 19 months alone, who knows? Once it was already in the system that there was an issue. The system was aware of the failings. It allowed potentially more and more and more failings to occur. And not only that, but I think it's also important to note that no part of that system has put up their hand and not only accepted responsibility for allowing that to happen, but to fix it as well. When Edward says the system, he means the entire justice system, but in particular, those within the legal profession whose job it is to regulate lawyers and ensure standards are upheld. And yet, for 19 months, Alan Aman was allowed to continue practicing. And we know that three of the known miscarriages of justice happened during that period. There's been no proactive step. There's been a there's been a reliance on already vulnerable and traumatised people, some of whom may be sitting in prison, to have the wherewithal, to have the knowledge, to know that something has gone wrong, to know that they haven't had the level of service that they deserve. We should point out that the first New Zealand Lawyers and Conveyancing Tribunal proceedings, which were in response to the case Judge McNaughton had overturned, were delayed while they tried to get answers from Alan Aman, or to at least give him a chance to appear. Eventually, he indicated he wouldn't be appearing, and the tribunal suspended him from practising for 10 months. After the second complaint, this one from Bill the Life Model, the tribunal struck Alan Aman off and ordered him to refund Bill's fees, which he still hasn't done, by the way. The tribunal described his breaches of his obligations to his client as egregious and willful, and that it had no option but to strike him off. He could no longer practice law in New Zealand. As to Edward's point about lack of action in the aftermath, the New Zealand Law Society says it has no powers to review cases like those of Alan Armand's. The advice between a lawyer and client are what you call privileged, kind of secret. But the society too was concerned, in fact seriously concerned is what they said, that there might be other cases. Its hands though were tied, especially after the government ruled out more powers for the society to investigate such cases. Hmm, like Edward said, it just seems like no part of the system can step up. In reporting for this story, I wondered about Crown Law, since it's part of the process, along with the police, prosecuting people. So I asked, did Crown Law have any obligations to review cases involving Alan Aman? A spokesperson said, no, there was no obligation on the Crown to act, nor would it be appropriate. 
They also made some general comments, which I ran past Edward to see what his reaction was. Well, on Crown Law, I asked them generally about the risk of miscarriages of justice, and they had this to say. There are occasions where the Crown has identified the risk of a miscarriage of justice before an appeal has been filed and has sought to advise relevant identifiable parties of that fact on the basis that the nature of the miscarriage is clear and will almost necessarily have arisen. It is then for the parties to obtain independent legal advice and decide whether they wish to appeal. Sometimes they do not, for example, where they do not wish to participate in a retrial, which is the usual remedy of a successful appeal, because they do not consider the outcome would be different. So that's Crown Law saying, hey, look, we know sometimes there are miscarriages of justice. We let the client know, and then we just leave it up to them. That is a group of highly educated lawyers with law degrees, specialists in criminal law, saying, oh no, we leave it up to the punter. Who might have no experience with Who might have absolutely no, their only experience is being prosecuted and potentially defended by an incompetent lawyer. At a vulnerable time in their life. And, and they're expected to have the gumption to know something's gone wrong <laughs> and make an approach to another lawyer and turn that wrong into right. If you're wondering why Crown Law doesn't think it's appropriate for it to act, well, they told me there were many reasons why it was important that Crown Law, quote, did not overstep its role in the adversarial process, including legal, constitutional, logistical, and resourcing reasons, end quote. So it seems like you've chased down the kind of system end of the story, but I'm still interested in the human end of it, specifically what happened to Alan Arman. I mean, we know he was struck off. Early on in his reporting, Edward got an email response from him which said, quote, defending criminals required me to make personal compromises that I'm no longer prepared to make. In that sense, the legal community and I agree, I'm not a good fit with this profession, end quote. So he certainly accepted his fate, it seems. But where is he now? Yeah, I've been wondering myself. But hey, do you want to know what he sounds like? Sure. Well, you're in luck. This is from a 2012 RNZ interview where broadcaster Mary Wilson is questioning Alan Aman about one of his clients. Nothing to do with this story as such, just someone he happened to be defending who was in the news. She's on a domestic purposes benefit. She has no house, she has no savings, no money, and... You know, her reputation's in tatters. But she's uh, able she's to afford a rental property on Queen's Parade in Devonport, which is quite expensive, isn't it? Well, I, I mean, I wouldn't be able to comment on that um, just because I don't know what the price is. But from my understanding, she's on a domestic purposes benefit, which she supplements uh, with some teacher aid work. That's Alan Armin. Sounds like a regular guy, pretty plausible, pretty friendly. Yeah. Anyway, I did a bit of digging around, spoke to a bunch of people who knew him and found out a bit about him how he had good grades when he studied at Auckland University Law School. He initially worked for one of the big firms as a litigation law clerk. Clark? Clerk. Clark. All right. He then practiced as a junior barrister in chambers with two senior lawyers before going out on his own into private practice in 2012. Obviously, I wanted to speak to him myself, so I tried a couple of numbers we had for him. Welcome to Spike. The number you've dialed is not currently allocated to a phone. No luck. Then I tried this one. You didn't recognise the number you dialed. Please check it and try again. 
We didn't recognize the number you dialed. Please check it and try again. Ah, that number's been disconnected. And then this one. Bingo. Good morning, speaking. Ah, oh, sorry. I this I thought this was a number for Alan. No, uh, no. Damn. Someone else has that number now, not Alan. Sorry about that. Then I thought I'd try this guy. A lawyer who knew him back around the time all this was going down. As I said, I'm a journalist at Stuff, and I'm working with some colleagues on a podcast uh, for Stuff. Yes. Trying to find Alan Arman, actually. We go around and round in circles a bit, and it becomes clear he doesn't know where Alan Arman is. But while I had him on the phone, I wanted to ask... I guess I'm also interested a little bit in, in kind of your take on him. What was he like? He tells me things started to go wrong for Alan Arman after he went into private practice. Then the wheels fell off the bus, so to speak. Yeah. Why do you think that happened? Because, like you say, um, he, he, by all accounts, he was he was a smart guy and he was seemed well, to be doing well. well. Everyone that everyone that becomes a barrister is a smart guy. Yeah. Um, however, he he perhaps um, he purported himself to be a person of more experience and and better than um, that he actually was. And also his fees were were quite large for his experience. Like his fees were like what you would expect to be had a King's Council. Mm. Some of the clients didn't have enough money to pay so he just didn't do any work and that got him into trouble as well. So mm. Mm. he was an alright person um, but perhaps he would have he would have been better to have stayed a solicitor with more senior lawyers around him and be guided for you know a decade or so and yeah. then go out on his own. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Money, ego, usual suspects, huh? Yeah. So did you figure out where he is now? Well, we know at one point he was in Bali, but other people say he was in Australia and working as a courier driver. Which all adds up to a slightly long-winded way of saying you failed. Yeah. Soz. The closest I got was by proxy, really. Bill, the life model, at one point, before Alan Arman had gone overseas, well, Bill bumped into him at the gym one day. I think for him it was a kind of deer in the headlights thing. You know, he definitely saw me, and at that point it was just like pretending I wasn't there, zero, zero eye contact. Mm. You know, if I sort of looked at him and tried to make eye contact with him, he would just look past me. And just kept talking to other people in the gym. <laughs> you know, like, he was acting. I could sort of tell he was, it looked like a show. Bill says he wasn't tempted to go up and talk to his former lawyer. He felt like he wanted to leave things up to the new lawyer he'd engaged by that time for the appeal. Still, must be nice to know he'd made Alan Aman squirm. Hell yeah. We should also say that Bill, remember that's not his real name, is getting on with life, and he's getting help with those mental health struggles he talked about. Look, this whole episode, by which I mean the Alan Arman case, not this episode of True Story, has not necessarily reflected very well on the legal profession. And, you know, standing up for lawyers is about as good a vote winner as standing up for journalists. But I just wanted to say... You're not going to say some of my best friends are lawyers, are you? Or not all lawyers? No! No, look, oh, look. 
kind of just shut up, Adam. Stop interrupting. I'm trying to be nice. When we were talking to James Olson, it kind of reminded me that for most criminal lawyers, this is not just a job. It's more than the nine to five. You're the mouthpiece for someone who's often going through quite a severely distressing time in their life. And it's those lawyers, especially the ones like James and the others who stepped up to clean up Alan Arman's mess, who, in a way, have to live with the consequences of what he did. It's unfortunate because it reflects poorly on my profession. It's let the profession down. And in fact, if you think about it, we've all been let down. It undermines public confidence in the rule of law and public confidence in the administration of justice. Got any uh, more true stories? It's very hard to follow what's being talked about, really, because nothing's being talked about. My girlfriend was actually waiting in the car. I came out and I was just like, what the fuck? That's next time. True Story is written and hosted by Eugene Bingham and me, Adam Dudding. Our producer is Jen Black. Our executive producer is Chris Reed. Editing and mixing by Connor Scott. Music by Audio Network, Blue Dot Sessions and Connor Scott. Graphics by Catherine George. Thanks also to Daniel Fraser, Laura Heathcote, Nadia Tolich, Janine Fennick, Joanna Norris and Mark I didn't hear that. Stevens. If you have a true story or want to get in touch with us, send us an email. Yes, we have an email. True story at stuff.co.nz. Matewa.